This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. I do feel such loss for the times when I would go to sleep with a, a stack of cookbooks next to my bed and just, I couldn't get enough of it. I couldn't get enough of it. And of course, you and I both know that was, you know, before everybody was a foodie, like we, you know, it was really, we inhaled it, everything about it, anything I could, any new cookbook that came out, any, any, you know, La Russe Gastronomique, anything like that, we just like devoured. And that was, that was a really wonderful, wonderful time having that much love for, for something. Marcy Bloom has gone on to become one of the world's great party planners, but she started her career as one of the first women chefs at the Culinary Institute of America in the 1970s. That was a long time ago. She then created the niche of wedding planner, and many have followed. Her story is inspiring. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Marcy Bloom, I am so excited to have you sitting here with me today. And I'm feeling a little nostalgic because it's hard to believe that over 40 years have gone by since we've known each other. You are actually rather responsible for my career, and we're here today to really celebrate yours. You know, I've always felt like a little maternalistic with you. I'm not sure why. I appreciate it so much. (laughs) I do. And I'm prefacing that by, because I really want to just tell you how proud I am of you. I think... You have created a career path, you have invented an industry, and you were really celebrated in the New York Times recently in an amazing article by Alex Strauss um, about your really being the eminent party planner, wedding planner, event planner in the world. That's my take on it. Of course it is. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we're friends for 40 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But... You know, the title of the article was interesting in that it was from social secretary to, I want to get this right, to party planning aficionado. So the social secretary part really kind of amused me. I get it. And you can explain a little bit more about it. But I know you from way before being a social secretary, when you were one of the first women to go to the Culinary Institute of America to be a chef. So... Welcome. Thank and you. <laughs> can we actually start there? How did that happen? Set it up for us. There were hardly any women. Well, I know I, I was, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm so delighted to be here. There are a few people I would have gone out for today. Because you have a big event tonight, right? I have a, we have a book party uh, tonight that we're doing for one of our former brides who wrote a fabulous book. Um, What's the name? It's called World Class, and it's about she's educated her three children in Hong Kong and Shanghai and Tokyo and now back in the States. She's Japanese-American and the differences in the education system, and it's really interesting, even for someone like myself who has no kids and doesn't really care. It's interesting. <laughs> but um, 
Get back to your question. No, the CIA was already in Hyde Park. And um, but we were the first uh, not I wasn't the first class. I was the first year of women to graduate because it was trimesters and it was uh, it was very intense. (laughs) Do we dare say the year? Of course. Well, now that they printed my age in the New York Times, which I was like, nice. Uh, yeah, I graduated in 76. Mm-hmm. And that was the first graduating class? Of, of women. Of the first women. year that women graduated. There were 50 of us. Which, which of course, is a huge. Marcy, how many of those women do you still know? How many of them actually went on to be chefs? So do you have any idea? interesting that you say that because, unfortunately, I don't know any of them. Uh, and I was just thinking about that recently. We stayed in touch for a while, and then, um, and unlike performing arts, where I went to high school, where I still have some of my best friends are from PA, and uh, certainly, you know, from my twenties and thirties, I have people like yourself that I've known <laughs> forever and ever and ever, and my best friends from where I grew up. But for some reason, CIA didn't. Uh, that didn't happen, and mm-hmm. uh, I don't know why. I I would guess that many of them uh, did not continue in any form of the industry because it was really rough. Rough to be a woman. It's always just... rough to be a woman. It was rough to oh, be... Oh, we're definitely I going mean, to talk was, about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, uh, it wasn't rough. Well, it was rough to be a female at uh, CIA for sure. As a matter of fact, I'm friendly with uh, Tim Ryan, who's now the president of the school, and his wife, Lynn, who are lovely people. He was, in fact, the fellowship, which is like an intern uh, for the class that my last class at school when we were in the Escoffier room, which was our final semester, he was the intern and now he's the president of the school, which is hilarious. Wow. Yes, yes. yes. Maybe there'll be a woman president someday of oh, that no, school. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can't even, we, maybe the school before the country, but I don't know. Yeah. A Jew <laughs> and a woman. I don't know. But anyway, um, we, uh, yeah, it was, it was tricky because there were certainly, and I know we'll we'll get to it. There's certainly no me too, or um, you know the chefs were pigs, and mm. they uh, would say, "Come sit on my lap, honey, and let's discuss your grade." And, <laughs> oh dear! Uh, you would you know you'd be you just have to figure out how to deal with it, which is usually you know you'd sit on their lap. <laughs> <laughs> Marcy, did you ever really think you wanted to be a chef? I mean, I know you. You're you were a hippie. You lived on a commune. Yeah, no, I, how did I, this I, happen? I, I don't know what I want. I, here's what happened, Rosie. I, I, I know. I uh, was living on a commune. I was, you know, and then I spent a year in my parents' house watching Let's Make a Deal or two years and didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. And after the, the farm broke up and I, my brother and his girlfriend were living in Paris uh, and she said, your parents are, you know, both suicidal and homicidal. You have to get out of the house. And I applied to Corn and Blue and they accepted me and I went there for the summer because my mother was a great cook and we were very involved in food growing up. So I always liked to cook. And and to this day, uh, although my mother was not professionally trained or was a much, much better cook than I ever will be. Wow. But so I went to Corner Bleu and then I came back and I was like, well, I could do this. This is something. And I, I, I didn't have um, a long-term goal as being a chef, but I took classes from John Clancy, who was mm. um, probably the most influential, and he wrote my. I took tons of classes from him, and I had a mad crush on him because in those days he didn't know anyone was gay. Um, <laughs> but I adored him. He was very special and very talented, and he took me under his wing, and I took tons of classes from him, and I sort of apprenticed with him. And then he wrote my recommendation for the culinary 
Um, From John Clancy. I had no idea. It's a big deal. And I was like, okay, so uh, let me go up there and see what I want to do. I had no idea. I just knew that I, you know, couldn't go back to watching Let's Make a Deal. (laughs) (laughs) I knew all the boxes already. In your life. Yeah. So um, I don't know what I thought, but I knew that I wanted to be around food. And I'm sure because every time you and I go out to eat, I see it in you. And I know you still have that same excitement about food and entertaining that I've uh, lost a bit. But I, in those days, I, I really do You talk about nostalgia. I, I am so um, I do feel such loss for the times when I would go to sleep with a, a stack of cookbooks next mm. to my bed and just I couldn't get enough of it. I couldn't get enough of it. And of course, you and I both know that was way before you know, my bar mitzvah clients tell me they're foodies, you know, Shlomo, the foodie, um, <laughs> you know, before everybody was a foodie, like we, you know, it was really, we inhaled it, everything about it, anything I could, any new cookbook that came out, any, any, you know, La Russe Gastronomique, anything like that, we just like devoured. And that was, that was a really wonderful, wonderful time having that much love for, for something. So beautiful. The thing is, though, Marcy, I think in a way, maybe what makes you so extraordinary in your profession is that you really are bringing this vast amount of actual food knowledge. I have a feeling most event and party planners did not have the background you did, nor did they go to the Culinary Institute or Cordon Bleu, don't you think? I don't know. It's funny that you say that because aside from the fact that I've forgotten mostly everything, my I'm, I'm working on my best friend's daughter's wedding, which is a whole other conversation. But uh, And she's uh, uh, they're from California, and she's this beautiful, young, new newly minted dermatologist in New York. And she just wrote me a one sentence uh, email this morning. I do not want a gluttonous wedding. <laughs> Apparently I was putting too many dessert stations on the event order. So there you have it. Wow. Well, we'll definitely get to some of the really <laughs> quirky things that people say to you. <laughs> yeah. And Marcy, did you invent the, the word Bridezilla? I don't think I did. Uh, I usually, I usually would say uh, Grumenstein. Well, you know, this show is um, kind of in three parts, and it is a little bit past, present, and future. But you did hit upon one of my most important questions: is about who's in your kitchen when you're growing up. And I did not know that about your mother, or that that she was a wonderful chef, or that you were such a food obsessed family. So, tell me a little bit about that. What did you eat growing up? Where did you grow up? Riverdale, uh, <laughs> which was, you know, uh, is still sort of an oat section of the Bronx. But uh, my uh, both my mother and my mother's mother, my mother's mother was a great baker. She was tough cookie, Hungarian cookie. And she um, <laughs> she was a great baker, like anything with a cream cheese dough and rugelach and things like that and schnecken. And she was a fabulous baker. And my mother just had the most rarefied sense of food because we were ostensibly kosher. Uh, not oh, I didn't know that yeah. either. So hmm. we had we only had kosher meat, which is why the first time, I mean, I, I don't eat meat any longer, but the first time I tasted like a porterhouse or something, I was like, this is what it tastes like. No wonder people eat cows. Uh, so she had to, you know, she had to do uh, a goulash and and things of that nature without any cream or any butter or any, you know, mm. with all, you know, her only... Uh, <laughs> the only thing she could use was schmaltz, and there's only so much schmaltz you can use. So she was a very inventive, very, very creative, very exact cook. And she would always say that 
her criticism of herself was that she was plod, a plodding cook, and because mm. I'm very fast, but I'm a disaster. And she just, you know, <laughs> would make really exquisite, beautiful things. So that, um, I mean, my former husband, who you know, is another story, is, and we're still good friends. He he's been asking me for years to try to replicate this one dish she did for Thanksgiving, and I've tried a million different ways, and I can't quite. Marcy, what is it? it. It's a jello mold, believe it or not. (laughs) What color? But she invented it. It was a a, uh, cranberry cherry uh, jello mold, but it had pineapple and celery and uh, walnuts. And and it was uh, very shaky, not a lot of gel. And it wasn't one of those things where you could bounce it off something. And she was just really Mm. and, and a wonderful hostess as well. Well, I guess you get that from her, too, because I've been to your house several times mm. for – and, you know, when you make this uh, 30-pound rib roast, standing rib roast for your friends and you don't touch a bit of meat, it's really a, a huge act of generosity. Marcy, so um, what did you do right after the Culinary Institute? Um, I worked – my first job, I was a sous chef in a country club in Larchmont, Quaker Ridge. Wow. Yeah, where I was... Uh, the only woman? Not only the only woman, I was uh, the only uh, Jewish person on the other side of the buffet line that was a <laughs> country club of German Jews, so they would all lean over and you know say to me, habla espanol, and I would answer them like, Yiddish and you know, just to freak them out. And then it became like, what could you have possibly done in this life to wind up on the wrong side of the buffet line. It was, they were really horrified. Marcy, right back then, um, it was not prestigious at all to be a woman or to be in a restaurant or to cook. No, it was uh, like going to auto mechanic school. Most of the guys in my class were, were guys, and some of them were very, very talented chefs, uh, turned out to be, but they, um, they were people who, you know, either got there on the GI Bill or their parents had said, you know, we're, you're going to wind up in jail. We're going to send you to a culinary school. Or, you know, they were juvenile delinquents. I mean, they were tough boys, which, of course, I loved. But um, we uh, – so I worked with this – and this wonderful German chef, I still remember, Siegfried Sprenger, who I would come back on the weekends and he would say to me and I'd say, oh, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. And he would say – Sexhausted, and I was thinking of that this week because I thought now you know I could sue him and put him in jail for the rest of his life for saying sexhausted, right? And there you Is that what it. he said? I yes. wasn't sure. It if must I heard. be sexhausted. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that was part of the territory, exactly. So I did that, and then um, I started looking for jobs, and I I, re- I couldn't find. I had applied to Lutes, and and I certainly was not good enough. For their kitchen, but that wasn't the point. I was rejected because they said we don't hire women, and uh, in writing, no less. You know, really? Uh, yeah, you could and also sue them. I well okay. now, but then <laughs> you just go. Oh, of course they don't. Um, but uh, you were determined uh, to do this. I, I didn't kitchen know what I wanted. I wanted to yes, and then I worked at a place which you might remember, and I I thought of it in preparation for talking to you here, um, because I couldn't remember the live music called uh, Coup de Fusil. Oh my uh, gosh! Of course, Marina I, de Brantes was wow. one of the first women chefs. Of I don't know how many stars I might have gotten from the New York Times, but it was a, it was a very big deal. But le coup de fusil means a gunshot, right? Uh, well, all, I think it also means heart attack, or say like a ah. like a. I think it's 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 an idiomatic. Yes, it's a, it's a bunch of various things. I'll have to. Um, like something shocking. Yes. Like a, yes. So, which it was. Having you in the kitchen yeah, would be it was, that. <laughs> it was extremely um, uh, nouvelle cuisine. Um, 
She Very. was one of the, the only women to really reach that kind of status in the mid-70s, right? I, I mean, there may so, have yeah. been a few more. And then, uh, well, there was some woman in in um, Paris, Dominique something, who used to wear high heels in the kitchen, do you remember? Because I remember thinking that that was so cool. Oh. Um, I'm not remembering at stupid, the moment, but cool. And then, um, and then I worked. I worked at Maxwell's Plum. I was the quote unquote garbanger, which was basically I just threw parsley on the plates as they went out. It was a gr- brigade system. It was like 35 guys and me. Uh, well, that's surprising, but it also is is the parsley, right? You wouldn't par- really do that today. No, they wouldn't let me do anything. When I was, which was they were right. I didn't know what I was doing, but still, I just stood at the kitchen door and threw parsley on the plates. And and then um, I did some consulting. My brother had some friends who were opening restaurants, and I came in and did menus. And then I met Peter, uh, my now former husband, who was who you know brings us to our connection. Ed Koch and my brother and la la la. And uh, Ed is the one who actually asked Peter to give me a job. He was opening up all these restaurants, and so Ed that- said, "Yeah, Howard's sister hates what she's doing. Why don't you hire her?" Is it you know something? And that's <laughs> and he did. So that's the perfect place to take a pause. And when we come back, we will talk more about our fortuitous meeting and what it means to be the world's most important wedding planner. Oh, my God. I don't know what I have to call someone. Here's a cooking tip to share. It's a recipe for my favorite fish dish. And it's made with only three ingredients. I usually make it in the summer when there's lots of fresh basil around because I like to make my own pesto. But you can also buy a great quality pesto at a gourmet food store. Simply take fillets of salmon and coat them thickly with a layer of pesto. Make sure the top is coated completely. Take a handful of pistachio nuts and crush them really well. Pack the pistachio nuts onto the pesto until it's covered completely. Bake at 400 degrees for about eight minutes. That's it. The fish will be juicy and moist and the flavor spectacular. From my kitchen to yours, give it a try and pass it along. So, Marcy, we did cover a little bit about your background in Riverdale and your mother, this beautiful cook who was so generous and your grandmother who made Schnecken and the Hungarian Jewish connection. And you and I also have that in common. Um, And now we are at the time that we're meeting and we're really talking about uh, 1977. So tell me again how it started, because I didn't know you when you first started working for Peter, who Peter Ashkenazi, a legend in the restaurant world. That's true. Well, uh, I met Ed Koch was mayor. Had uh, He was already mayor? I don't know. You know, that's a good question. I, you know what, Marcy? I don't think he was. I don't think okay. he was either. I think he right was before. Congressman Koch. He was a congressman. At the time. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I don't know. I, and I know you and I've discussed this in the past, but just very quickly. My brother was, when my brother wrote for the Village Voice, he was Ed Koch's spokesperson on the side. And he always said it was the best job he ever had because I think Ed was a councilman then and uh, nobody cared about his opinions. My brother said nobody ever called him, so he got paid anyway. It was it was great. <laughs> but but my brother – Your brother went on to become a very famous writer, yes, Howard Bloom. Yes, my brother Bloom. is yes. very famous Brilliant. Writer. And Brilliant. so my, my brother and uh, Peter Ashkenazi, the restaurateur, and Ed, I think, were having lunch or dinner and they were all friends and um, someone said, how's Marcy? And my brother said she hates what she's doing and – Peter was leaving in those days. I think he was doing PR for Rainbow Room and Gallagher's and 
and he was leaving to open a bunch of restaurants. Mm -hmm. And I, Ed said, well, why don't you just hire Marcy? And he hired me as a, as a food consultant to do the menus, help with the menus, et cetera. Which was a very new career at very the time. New that career. did not exist. And I think he paid me $100 a week as a consultant, and I was overjoyed. And I did that. <laughs> and at the same time, I was living on 16th Street. At the same time, my dear high school friend, who was uh, George Lang's daughter, I needed more work. I couldn't. Even then, I couldn't do 100 hours a week. And uh, Andrea, his daughter, called him and he said, well, it's funny, we don't have a kitchen yet in Cafe Des Artis. We don't have a pastry kitchen. So why doesn't she bake for us? And just so I baked layer cakes and bun cakes and stuff and schlepped them up to the Cafe Des Artis a couple of times a week. And I'm sitting here with end. my mouth open. I had no idea. Yeah, he was very kind to me, actually. And George then, was and a the, wonderful man. And then yeah. the irony was, of course, that I went up, uh, you know, I graduated his his. Now, you know, his widow um, graduated CIA right after I did. So I always said I went to high school with his daughter and college with his wife. With Jennifer Lang. <laughs> with Jennifer Lang. Who also yeah. um, uh. edited La Russe Gastronomique. That's this right. was a huge project. But Marcy, you know why I think this is so exciting? And, and uh, I hope people are enjoying our chit-chat. But this was a phenomenally exciting time for mm. women. I call it the first food revolution. It happened in the mid to late 70s. Something else entirely is happening now, and it's also exciting. But there was a history, and there were women, and and, and uh, we were really struggling to enter the world, the food world, uh, recreate it in many ways, and then to be seen and celebrated. Now, that hasn't really happened, but I feel that that's beginning to happen now. This is yeah. the time for that. Where there's life, there's hope, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, you're absolutely right. My, I have two best friends. One lives in Portland, and she's very, very well-known. Uh, in Maine? or in Portland, Oregon. 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 She started a edible medibles business several years ago. It's called Lori and Mary Jane. And she got um, four pages of The New Yorker last year as the Martha Stewart of marijuana. The, the reason I mention her is <laughs> cool. because she went to NYU, you know, got a uh, liberal arts degree or anything. And when I graduated culinary, she said, oh, the hell with this. And she went and she applied and went to CIA after I did and became a really good chef. Um, because it was, it was so exciting at that time. And it was so cool. You'd go up there and uh, Believe me, nobody wanted to go spend two years in Poughkeepsie, least of all <laughs> myself, but there was nothing else. I mean, you, if you wanted to do it professionally, you, you went to CIA. Um, it was very European-centric also at the time, yes, which meant yes. to be educated and cultured, and that's what everyone was interested in. That's of course, correct. that's changing wildly. Right. Okay, right. so after you made bun cakes yes. for George Lang, then what happened? I, you know, I don't know what happened. Um, uh, yeah. Peter and his partner... Uh, his business partner started opening restaurants and um, I hired some kids from CIA who I knew and we, I just kept, kept going, uh, running the restaurants and then. And Marcy, I, what were the names? It was well, American. It was, it was American Hospitality Management. Right. And at the, uh, at the demise, or at the <laughs> end, we had, I think, eight restaurants, including, uh, well, at one point we had owned, uh, he had owned, I was, not married to him then, Luchow's, right. uh, the world's Part largest of history, German right. restaurant. And then at, at the very end, we owned uh, Gage and Tolner, mm. which was, the uh, in that time, the only interior landmark restaurant in New York. Wow. Um, and was it Peter who invited Edna Lewis to be yes, the so chef Peter, there? Yes, that was one of Peter's. That was I, I must say that was really uh, genius of him. He had this idea and he, believe it or not, you know, God, this is, this is like memory lane. He and Molly O'Neill went down 
to uh, wherever Edna was living then, I, maybe Savannah, someplace, mm-hmm, I think and, that's right. and coerced her into coming up to New York. Wow. She had a niece who was living up here and uh, cooking for us at Gage and Tolner. Very exciting. Yeah, she was amazing. Well, you know, Marcy, you may have to come back to, to do this memory lane thing and women in, in, in the restaurant segment. But since um, you just had this fabulous article in the New York Times about being a wedding planner, let's talk about that. Mm. So because there was a segue between doing the restaurant work and yeah. starting your own event planning firm, is that what happened? Yes. And how yes. does one... <laughs> I don't have a clue. I tell you, and every day I don't know. I was like, "How does someone do this?" You know, Peter and I we were we were not quite separated, but I it became apparent to me that I did not want to work as a banquet manager in these mm-hmm. restaurants for the rest of my life, and I needed to do something on my own. I wasn't sure what it was, and there were some uh, people, mostly women, who were quote unquote party planners, and they'd come in to the restaurants and they'd, they'd book, you know, either tour groups or, um, uh, you know, a bat mitzvah dinner or something. And I wasn't very impressed with any of them. And I was like, ha, I could do this with my eyes closed. Little did I know famous last words. So I said, let me, let me try. And I put it, I put an ad in New York magazine, um, for, I, I guess, I mean, the thing is, even though, and my company, we, we do all different kinds of events from book parties to, Bar bat mitzvahs. We do a lot of very high end uh, birthday and anniversary parties, but weddings. And the weddings of the most famous people. And you'll well, well, weddings tell are the, us. weddings are usually the draw. You know, um, wedding. There's a lot of weddings that take place. So <clears throat> I put an ad in New York Magazine, and since nobody was a wedding planner then, I mean, now you, you go to New York Magazine, there's four thousand ads <laughs> in the back. But it was like I had made up this ridiculous profession. Women's Wear Daily saw it and they did a full page on me. So I had to pretend that I had been doing this for a couple of years, which I wasn't. I took all my <laughs> wedding photos and shuffled them. You know, cause, um, and uh, So you really did invent this? Well, there were there were other people doing, doing it, but it. I thought I invented it, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is just as mm-hmm. good, right? I was like, oh, what do you mean? Oh, there are other people? I was, you know, in those, <laughs> you know when you're that young, you're so arrogant. It was like, oh, no, I, I, I made this up. But apparently other people had made it up before me. Probably not very many, right? Few. So you started doing this. You you created Marcy Bloom Associates. Right. And uh, I kind of did the math. So it's about 30 years that you've been doing this. And I understand 30, yeah. something like 500 weddings. But Marcy, your clientele <gasps> has been remarkable. So can you just throw out a few names of people <sighs> who you've... Not necessarily that those were the best events or that you enjoyed right. those the best, but they are certainly... Noteworthy. Um, LeBron James. LeBron and Savannah, yeah. Uh, Billy Joel and Katie when they were married. I Actually, 31 years ago today, today is the anniversary, I did Kevin Bacon and Kira Sedgwick's wedding. Wow. It was the first one. I did several weddings for the Rockefeller family. One of the girls, lovely, wonderful people, I did two weddings for her. Uh, and um, Salman Rushdie and Padma. Salman Rushdie and Padma, who you introduced me to. I did. That's yes, true. Gave me my start in the celebrity wedding world. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Nate Berkus and Jeremiah Brent, their wedding. And um, uh, Jeffrey Zakarian and Margaret Zakarian, food people. So, and Gail Simmons and uh, Jeremy. Wow. Yeah. And so. What are the the events that you're the most proud of, though, Marcy, that have been kind of meaningful to you for whatever reason? And I don't just mean money. 
Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Recently, we we did a big wedding at Sea Island, Georgia, which has gotten a lot of play because Vogue printed it and it's been everywhere. But the uh, and that's not why I'm so fond of it. It was a beautiful couple, and they had lovely uh, parents. The bride's parents were divorced, but behaved impeccably. And uh, it was three or four days in Sea Island, and it was it was just. Fabulous, beautiful. And I got to work with a designer, a dear friend of mine who I haven't worked with before, but I've known him for years, Todd Fiscus out of Dallas, who transformed the lobby of this of the cloisters in Sea Island into it looked like a cathedral. The mm-hmm. whole thing was just perfect. And they they spent money. Um, so we got to do a lot of creative details that were really, really fun. And you've done events all over the world. Last year, we're in Istanbul in August. We did Istanbul. Last year, we did Istanbul, Amalfi, and Montenegro, three in a row. And that was crazy. I know for people listening, they must think this is so glamorous Glam- oh, and so fun. Glamorous. And, but I, I, you work harder than anyone I know. And the advance work. It's exhausting. It's difficult. It's not. I just spoke. Our mutual friend, Preston Bailey, just had me speak at a, a educational seminar he did for three days for people who are coming up in the event business. And I, so I, I gave a little chat for him and I said, I, I, someone asked me if I had any regrets and I said, yes, making it look so glamorous for all of you people who think that now, oh, this is a piece of cake. You know, I, I'm just going to Instagram one little table and get clients. And I was like, this is, this is rough. What a great I, response. Yeah. But I know you speak a lot all over the world, too. You kind of do the equivalent of TED Talks for event planners, right? <laughs> that, that, you know, that's a very sweet <laughs> well, you know analogy, the way I feel about yeah. you, you know? So, yeah. And Marcy, you've also written some of the most definitive books in that uh, niche as well, right? Weddings for Wedding Dummies. Wedding Planning for Dummies, yes. Mm-hmm. That sold millions and billions of copies? Yes, that's that's why my driver is downstairs. <laughs> my driver, Metro. <laughs> Uber and Metro, my drivers, yeah. Uh, um, do you, in fact, have regrets? Oh, I thought we only had. <laughs> I have a, have a party tonight. Um, <laughs> are we talking about life, or we're we talking about well, just about uh, cho- choosing this pathway for yourself? No, I think you've loved it. Let me let me try to frame it like this. I I know uh, some of my colleagues who are uh, younger. Uh, not all of them, because some of them my age had the same way of looking at it. Had a career path. Uh, someone like Brian Raffinelli, who. Uh, did Chelsea Clinton's wedding, and he's a dear friend and and a very talented event planner or a company called FET. Or they, um, if they didn't come out of business school, they still had a long term plan and very definitive uh, benchmarks about what we're going to get from here, and then we're going to get from here to there. And I'm like, well, I can plan a party, and uh, I know I know food, and I was a an actress before that. I went to performing arts. I was like, well, here we go. You know, and I had, and I was like, look at that. People are calling. Uh, I guess we should get a phone. And, (laughs) but so that's the, so every day it's, it's sort of recreating this business. When I walk in and there are actually people sitting there who work for me, I'm like, this is weird. Uh, There was no concerted uh, long range plan at all. I still don't have one. (laughs) But Marcy, you know what? I don't think this is an unfamiliar story at all for women who have really forged and carved out a place for themselves in the culinary or hospitality industry. And I so appreciate your, your sharing that. 
When we come back, we'll hear more about what's meaningful to you now, what the future will bring, and your legacy recipe. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. Marcy, I have the feeling the phone may be ringing off the hook now in your office after this great interview, but what does it really mean to you? Why was it important? Well, first of all, I was delighted that I didn't uh, have a publicist to get it. So, mm. because I've, I've maintained for several years now that unless you're uh, hawking a particular thing, like a book or a line of cookware or something, that if you just want to be famous, publicists are not very useful at the moment. I hate to say that because some of them are friends of mine, but uh, but they are very useful for something specific, just not general fame. Uh, so that was the one thing. And also, uh, you know, so many of us talk about this all the time. So the, the downside is the imposter syndrome. You know, you read it. I mean, it came out in the Times. I'm like, ha ha, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> Who is that person? That's funny. Um, I... No, I, the, the other lovely thing about it is I, I got several emails from colleagues who have been doing this a long time. I mean, colleagues that I really respect, someone like Mindy Weiss, who's, uh, you know, does all the Kardashian parties and I've known for years, or Judy Paulin has been doing this for a million years. A lot of the, uh, Vicki Dubin, a, a very uh, successful party planner in Westchester. Almost identical. Thank you for validating our industry. Mm. And that made me really happy because it sounds like such a flaky, stupid thing to do. I'm a party planner. You know? <laughs> and it's and it used to be, when you, you mentioned social secretary before, what I was saying to Alex Strauss, who's this the journalist who wrote it, who's a very, very smart woman, was uh, I wasn't suggesting that I was a social secretary because I can barely alphabetize. But what I was saying was that people like Letitia Baldridge, and that, who were essentially event planners, were considered, you know, she was Jackie O's social secretary because ah. there was no other moniker for it then, really. Um, so, but these women who wrote, thank you for making it sound like we actually have a real industry as a real business. And that made me happy. And does it feel like this is opening more doors or that it's sort of the uh, kind of the, the the icing on the cake for you? Oh, my God. No icing on the cake. No, 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 no. Yes, I'm, I'm still pounding on doors daily. I'm uh, we're still uh, chasing people on Instagram who got engaged. Like, hello. <laughs> I was having this conversation with someone last night, a sort of a celebrity who announced their engagement on Instagram and uh we wrote, you know, for a hot time or if you want your wedding planned, call. And she did. We were laughing. She said, you're funny. It's like, thank you. you know. The, the um, changes you have seen or must have seen in the industry in the last, you know, 30 years have probably been astonishing. But are there one or two um, kind of social etiquette changes well, the, or just uh, the big one is yeah, Google. Is, oh. I, the fact that we all had businesses before Google. The fact that we would do a wedding in Nantucket, for example, you'd fly up to Nantucket and you'd pick up the phone book. That was the thing to do. You'd steal a yellow pages and a white pages from <laughs> somewhere and you'd fly home with it. And then you'd just go through it painstakingly to try to find local vendors, uh, florists, musicians, caterers, whatever. 
I mean, Google, it's like someone gave us a magic wand. At the same time, it also gave our prospective clients magic wands. So they think they know everything. But, you know, I saw I saw in so-and-so that that glass was 297 and you said it was 307. That That's the uh, Pandora's box aspect. Are weddings happier? Do you think people are more satisfied or the expectations have gotten so off the charts that um, for the bride and their family and for the the guests it's too much that's not good for business Roseanne I um <laughs> you may answer any way you'd like okay well as you know I'm, I'm a fairly political person so and I I honestly believe this and I've been saying it in a lot of interviews I believe that the world is in a very depressed place at the moment and certainly in this country people are freaking out uh, and feeling extremely uh, uneasy and anxious about the future in, in not whether they're going to survive or not, but just in general, people are really miserable. And I have found that my clients are embracing celebrations more so than they ever have in the past because there there's this sense of urgency, like, uh, I don't want to say fiddle while Rome burns, but there is a, a little touch of if we can afford to do something fabulous, not only for ourselves, but for our friends and family who perhaps are not, have not been as successful as we are. So, oh, I think, you know, I was talking to someone today. Uh, oh, I think the guests would love to have an affogato station or something like that. It, and that I really enjoy more so than me, 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 me. And I, I do think mm. it's it's become more about... Um, Grace and sharing, perhaps, than in the past. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah, isn't that that's very good? (laughs) At least there's one good thing that's happening. (laughs) I would imagine going down the tubes. That would be very good for business. (laughs) That you really are uh, in the business of pleasure, as we used to say, right? And and sharing it and um, everything you just said is so is so beautiful. Uh, One quick example could you give us for people who don't have much of a budget and want to do something meaningful, intimate? Spiritual, even what's the craziest, simplest thing you've ever done? Well, I don't know if they're if the craziest and simplest. <laughs> that's true. They don't uh, have to go together. Yeah. Um, I mean, I my number one tip I said in the Times, and I'm not kidding. It was cut the guest list. There's absolutely no reason to have a zillion people there that you're not going to recognize in five years when you look at the photos. Like, who the hell is that person <laughs> that I paid two hundred and fifty dollars for? Um, and if you must have those people then have a a giant, have a small ceremony with your closest friends and family, go out and have a great lunch or brunch or something. And then if you still have to do something else, then just have a big cocktail party with an iPod and be done with it. Um, I, one of the nice things that's happened over the years in my business is my clients with rare exception, they may just, and, and it's their money. They can decide how they want to spend it, but it's, it's, very rarely do I have people who can't afford it. They just may not want to spend it, which is fine. It's their prerogative. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, I used to have people who were like, maybe I'll mortgage my house for this. And mm-hmm. that's not the case anymore. Um, they can afford to do what they want mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. And what advice do you have for <laughs> young women or men mm-hmm. who want to get into this industry at this point in Run. time? Run. <laughs> uh, I think it's rough. I think you really... It's it's two parts. Unlike most things, uh, if, if someone wants to go to become a lawyer, and maybe I'm maybe I'm naive on this 
point. But if someone wants to be a lawyer, I don't think anybody says to them, how many people do you know? You know they just go to law school, but study, become a talented lawyer, and someone will, in some white shoe law firm, will figure out that you're a talented lawyer and you will be promoted and you could become a partner still. Uh, I don't think law firms, and again, maybe it's naivete, hire people out of law school for who their client list is. In this business, it's, it's essential that you uh, have a very large social circle, mm. which I have developed now, but I certainly didn't have when I started. And, and it's there are lots of untalented people in my business who do very well because they know a lot of people mm. it, it's it's a it's some it's a it's a sales job and a bit of an instagram world it's and a, you yes, have many no many question. Uh, followers. instagram followers yes, i slept with every single one of them <laughs> <laughs> i are you optimistic though about this field in this industry i don't know mm. uh jury is out i don't know i i um when I spoke at Preston's event, I was I I felt very optimistic about it. A lot of young people who really wanted to learn were there, and I thought this is great. And then I'll see someone with a zillion followers on Instagram who, and there's a table for four that I know cost six thousand dollars, and <laughs> I'm thinking you can't replicate that for a wedding. What are you doing? Mm. So. I, I, the jury's out. You have to ask me next year. Okay. <laughs> I would love to. I'm so glad that your legacy has been kind of, uh, you know, established now, especially with this article. But do you have a legacy recipe that you would like to well, share? Well, I, I, I was going to say, I, I do need you to define specifically your a, a legacy recipe, which is one that I would want to be remembered for or one that I have from someone else's legacy. I, it's a, ah, it's it a could, wonderful question. It could be either. Um, ha. <laughs> ha ha. I guess uh, my mother's <laughs> peas and pasta shells, which was a, another Thanksgiving standby, which we have tried to replicate. And I have done a pretty good job of it. But uh, it uh, is never, as you know, you know, it's like the Madeleine, right? It's never exactly as how Gert made it. But uh, it's a lot of Onions and garlic and half butter and half olive oil and fresh peas and um, shelled peas and, and pasta shells all mixed up and as a side dish for people who don't eat stuffing. It's quite yummy. Wow. <laughs> and unique. Yeah. I don't know. where I think she got it actually originally from the Time Life Foods of the World series, which is still a series that has legs to me. Definitely. Uh, and that's where, you know, John Clancy um, – was the test kitchen chef. And so I, but I think she doctored it as she did with mother. It probably had something in there that she couldn't use. So. <laughs> so. That's a wonderful recipe. Marcy, um, it's been such a joy to have you here. Very meaningful to me because you are the one who made it possible for me to become the chef at Gracie Mansion at 24. I could not get uh, past anyone else. They said, we need you to go interview with one more person, and it was you. And you very could have easily said, no. <laughs> She's too tall and thin. Yes. I, don't, I, don't, I don't want her around. Yeah, yeah uh, no, it was very generous of you, and you're well, a very, very generous thank person. You. Well, as soon as I met you, I was like, wow. I was so intimidated. I was like, of course you have to hire her. She actually knows things. <laughs> I was also a great imposter. Marcy, um, I ask all my guests this question, so here, here it goes. What does one woman kitchen mean to you? 
Well, that's a tough question, even though I, I, I should have studied, I think. You know, that's a, I find I say that a lot in life. It's a perfect title for anything you do, because I've seen you actually on, with, without sous chef, without dishwasher, without anyone in a, in a veritable whirlwind around your kitchen. And most of the time, only three ingredients still, <laughs> and still manage to... Uh, Create magic. Uh, I, on the other hand, one woman kitchen to me means that my kitchen is too small for anybody else to fit in. I wish we had more, more room, but that'll be my next life. Thank you. It's so you. Yeah. Thank you. This is great, really. If we both don't start weeping because of how long we've known each other, it's really, it's, it's a, true. It, I know. Nostalgia is. Thank you. Yeah. And to all the women out there in our industries who are becoming. And yeah, kind of, it's going to uh, be interesting to watch, I think. Yeah, right? we'll come back and we'll talk about it. Marcy, how can people find you? My office is on Fifth uh, Avenue between 12th and 13th in Manhattan. And it's marcybloom.com and marcybloom on Instagram. And uh, I'll give you the office number, too, because we're desperate. No, just kidding. <laughs> 212-929-9814. And that's Marcy, M-A-R-C-Y, and Bloom, B-L-U-M. Thank you for remembering that. That's right. So um, much love and luck to you. Thank you, Thank you for being with me. Thank you. Thank you to all of you for being with Marcy and me. In my kitchen, I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold. And check out everything I'm up to on my website at rosangold.com. And if you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden. Written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Connect.